welcome to the Redeemer 20 Sermon Podcast, where our goal is to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. My name is Luke Dirks, and I'm your host, and I'm also privileged to lead the 20s ministry at Redeemer Church in beautiful Rockford, Illinois. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at our Thursday night gathering at 7 p.m. We hope you enjoy this, and we hope you also join us at a future Thursday. question. This is actually has nothing to do with the message, but um, how many of you, just show of hands, were able to make it to prayer night last night? Okay, that is awesome. Um, you know, I got to, to go last night, and I was thinking about it, and the more I thought about it, the more I realized that outside of Sunday mornings, I think prayer night is the most important ministry we do at this church. And my heart, like this is just from me, this is nothing to do with what we're talking about tonight, but if you are able to, um, we have prayer night once a month on Wednesdays. Um, it's always the first Wednesday of the month. This, this week, uh, this month was a little different because of this event, but it is an opportunity for us to come together as a church and to pray. And what I have found is that God does more work in my heart at those meetings um, than really anywhere else. And last night, that was the case. We came together, and man, that place was rocking. The worship was so good, and I ended up praying with some of our uh, senior saints, which I haven't done before, uh, before and it was just it was such a blessing uh, when you get to pray with people from just different generations. And so especially for us in our 20s, I've, I just want to encourage you. Um, a month from now, I'd love to, to ask the question again and see everybody's hands go up. So we should pack that place out. Um, students does a great job, but I think we could beat them. So there's my exhortation. Uh, moving to the message, please open your Bibles to John chapter 2. We're going to be starting in verse 23. Um, I remember the first time I ever visited Chica uh, Chicago, the city of Chicago. I am not an Illinois native, and I was a baby at the time. I was a freshman in high school, and my parents and I and my older sister, Kelsey, we flew um, into O'Hare, and we were coming from Kansas City, and of all the things that we did that, that week, we were only there for about a couple days, one of the things I found the most fascinating was the CTA. Does anyone, do you guys know what CTA is? Okay, well, does anyone know what CTA stands for? Say it louder. Yep, Chicago Transit Authority. I had to look that up, so good job. Um, what it is, is it is the second largest public transportation system in the country. And it's in Chicago. And it's all these different subways and trains. And what you find is some of them are above ground, some of them are underground. And over a million people ride on those trains every single day. And so I had never seen anything like this before I came and, you know, I thought it was awesome. Um, I was kind of captured by it, just the technical aspect. But the second thing that captured me about the CTA was the people you meet at CTA. Um, if you've never done it, uh, you really get to meet some of life's most interesting people. And if you were to ride on the CTA, um, if you were just, you know, grab some headphones and get on there and go for a couple hours, I guarantee you would come away with some stories. Because um, you just, you meet people from all over the place. And what I, um, what I found is that after that kind of experience, I came back to Chicago for college, and I ended up going there. So I was on the CTA all the time. And what is more fun than uh, meeting new people at the CTA is watching people try to learn how to use the CTA, especially if you're a native. And specifically, um, it's the process of getting onto the train station. And you have to go through something called a turnstile. Does anyone know what that is? Okay, so a turnstile, I, I didn't know the name of it. I had to look it up. It is a gate, right? And it's the gate that has like those three metal prongs sticking out, and you kind of like push it, and it rotates to go through. If you've never seen one of these, maybe you've seen one at like an amusement park. And they're kind of fun to use the first couple, you know, first couple times you're going through it. It's amusing. What is even more amusing, again, is watching new people try to figure them out. Because I don't know what it is, but there's something about these turnstiles that really mess people up. And in Chicago, what you have to have, this is essential, you have to have what is called a Ventra card. If you do not have a Ventra card and you don't scan that thing as you're running towards this gate, it is not going to turn. 
And so, you know, me and my buddies, sometimes we'd just be there and you'd look over and, you know, one day you're looking and a businessman comes, he's full suit and he talks and he's got his coffee and he's just, either he's never done it before or he's zoned out and he's just walking and then, bam, you just coffee everywhere and you're, you're sitting there and you're just like, <laughs> you don't help him or anything because we're horrible. You're just like, oh man, that stinks. Then you're there another day, and you see just, you know, the guy who's way too cool for school. He's got his Canada goose on. He's got the beats over his ears, and he's just kind of swaggering on. And then he hits, the, he hits the gate, and just bam, he gets humbled. And all you think is, yes, <laughs> justice. <laughs> oh, man, and then you see the moms with two kids in their arms coming toward. No, I'm kidding. That doesn't. <laughs> Here's the problem. All of us, to one degree or another, come to God, and we don't know how to get into his kingdom. And before Christ, we're a lot like those people at the CTA, right? We're coming towards the gate, and we have all these assumptions in our minds thinking we're going to get through. But if we don't have the one thing, it's not going to happen. And what is so destructive about this is that it does not only happen before we meet Jesus— but it can also happen afterwards. And here's what I mean by that. For many of you, you're here um, every Sunday morning, you're here every Thursday night, and you get to hear again and again and again that salvation is by grace through faith. And, and some of you, you have these truths so deeply ingrained into you, you preach them, you sing them from the rooftops like you've got it figured out. But if I look under the hood of your lives, even for a second, what I often find is that many of us have been beaten down by anxiety and stress, and we don't know why. And we're just exhausted all the time. And you ask why? Like, I can't figure it out. I know the right truths, but it's not, it's, not, it's not working for me. And really, it's because you've forgotten what gets you in the gate. And you've placed your hope in other things. Has anyone else had this happen? I have. And it's soul-crushing. And it can happen so easily in a place like this, like Redeemer 20s. And we can become people who can preach all the right truths, and we recite all the right verses, but in our hearts we have no joy, and our love for Christ starts to fade away. And it's because we think we have all the right answers, but we can't figure out how to connect them to our hearts and our daily experience. There's just a disconnect between the two things. And that disconnect, it can be soul-crushing, and it can happen without you even realizing it. It kind of creeps up on you. And for some of you in this room, that's where you're at right now. Some of you, you know the truth, but it just seems like they're not being applied to your life. And others of you here, you're not there right now, but you're going to be there someday. You might find yourself in that position. And so it's necessary I think, utterly necessary for us to understand how we get in to the kingdom. And so that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. We need to hear what Jesus has to say on the matter. And my concern this evening is that there are people here who, if Christ were to return tonight, they would not enter the kingdom. They would not get into heaven. And so this message is for you. My second concern is that there are people who, if Christ did come back, you would get into the kingdom, but your life doesn't reflect that truth. This message is also for you. We both, whatever camp you find yourself in, need good news. Because God created us to enjoy him. God didn't create us to live in, in the reality where we know the right truths, but then we don't get to experience them in our lives. He created us so that we could trust in him and then knowing what gets us in the kingdom, live in joy, live in love out of that. And I want that for my life and I want that for your life. And understanding what gets you into the kingdom of heaven is what's going to unlock that in your life. I believe that. And so in our passage, Jesus is going to speak to a man a lot like many of us. A man who thought he had all the answers, but he still didn't understand how to get in at all. And the answer that Jesus gives to his problem is not an easy one. Um, I've been wrapping my, my head around this all week. It's a hard answer, but it's one that we need. And so we're going to start reading. We're going to be looking at John chapter 2, 
um, starting in verse 23. And then by the grace of God, we are going to be jumping in to John chapter 3. So we are making progress here, and we're going to go to verse 8. Now when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, he did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and he needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, And the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound. But you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. We're going to stop there. So what is it, you know? Nicodemus, in our passage, he's going to come to Jesus, and he's looking for something. You know, he's looking for this secret. And Jesus says to him, you want to get in? You must be born again. That's his answer. It's the image of a child being brought into the world. I thought of that um, last week. I got to go to Josh and Carla Thor's baby shower, right? And, And I was really struck by, you know, having a child and birth is just an absolute miracle. I don't have any kids of my own, but like when I think about that, that there's, n- there's no life and life, and we can't make sense of it. It's incredible. And that's the exact same kind of imagery Christ is talking about here. He's saying we need to be born again. We need new life for the first time. And again, it's supposed to be a miracle, something that amazes us. And it's the thing that each of us needs to enter the kingdom of heaven. Because Jesus' answer is that if you don't have this one thing, If you have not been born again, then you're not getting in, right? You're like those people at the CTA. You're going to run at that gate, and you're going to have a rude awakening when you come away, not being let in. So I want to spend the rest of our time answering three questions. Those are going to be my points. Three questions from the text that show us what that actually means. Because we can say you have to be born again, but actually understanding what it means to be born again is something different entirely. So I I want to go as far into that as I can. And that leads me to the first question, which is, what is in man? And for this first question, I want to look all the way back at the beginning in chapter 2, where it says that Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast. And so Paul was able to preach two weeks ago, and he talked about during this feast, Jesus came into the temple, and he just drove everyone out, right? He had the whip, and it was not a nice thing. He was just driving people out, but it was righteous, and all these different things are going on. But during the same week, what we find is Jesus is doing miracles, It doesn't say that here explicitly, but it says that he was doing signs enough that other people were starting to believe in him. And and it's likely the the signs that he was doing throughout the rest of the gospel. So Jesus was in Jerusalem during this feast, and he's healing people, he's casting out demons, he's doing all these different things. And we can kind of pass over this. It's easy to see Jesus is doing signs, and we're like, yeah, that's what Jesus does. But I just want that to be a reminder for you. Jesus came to the earth in power. And he used that power to validate his claims. And what's interesting is we don't even have all the signs that he did. At the very end of this book, in the Gospel of John, the very last verse, this is what it says. There are also many other things that Jesus did. And were every single one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And so Jesus was just doing miracles all the time. I don't know about you, but I kind of want to see, like, the lost tales of Jesus. Like, that'll be a good day in heaven where he's like, oh, but let me show you the ones you didn't get to see, right? 
And that's what's going on here in Jerusalem. He's doing these miracles, and it says that people are starting to notice. They're starting to buy into it. They're starting to believe is the word it uses. But what is so fascinating about that is that even though the people start to trust in Jesus, he does not entrust himself to them. Look at verse 24. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is an interesting text, because it says the people believe, and the logical assumption is if people believe, then Jesus should be entrusting himself to them. Is it not? But obviously that doesn't happen. It says that people believed in his name, but Jesus doesn't trust them. Why? Because he knew what was in them, and he knew the conditions of their hearts. That is the key. Now, before I got into ministry, I got to do a ton of jobs, like in high school. Most of us have this experience, but my favorite job I've ever had outside of ministry was lifeguarding. Um, I got to be a lifeguard for like six years, and it was awesome. I love just like the power trip you get when you're whistling at a kid. Stop! You're like, oh, that feels good. But one of the first things, coming back, maybe, oh man, I just put that, maybe there's a reason I'm in kids' ministry. Mmm, I just put that together. One of the first things you learn when you're a lifeguard is they, they do this whole training experience. And for us, it was, like, super intensive. Like, you're getting put through, like, boot camp, and you're having to do these, like, tests where you're swimming. But if you can make it through that, they end up training you on a bunch of medical stuff. And essentially what they're wanting you to be able to do is to assess someone's physical condition. Um, and they have a system for this. And the reason they have that is so that on any given day, if a kid were to come up to me and say, hey, there's some dude in the back of the pool, like he's lying on the edge, he's not moving, I would go over and be able to figure out what actions need to be um, taken um, within like a minute. And so here's what the system is. The first thing they taught us to do is you walk up and it's survey the scene. So you had to do this, survey the scene. You're looking around, you're making sure there's nothing there that's going to kill me. Because if somebody else is unconscious, it might be because there was an electric line or something like that. So survey scene, you have to say, scene is safe. Gloving up. As soon as you glove up, you're coming down to the person. Tap, tap, tap. Hey, buddy, you all right? You had to check with them. Now, if there's no response, you had to plot your whistle and you had to yell. So this was me in, uh, in freshman year. I was kind of embarrassed about this. But you had to yell, whistle, as loud as you could. And so you just yell, whistle! Help, I have an unconscious adult male. You call 911 to get back to me. And they just drilled that into us. Like you had to be able to say it word for word and then whatever it was. Now, as soon as you did that, you're going back to the person. You're doing two things. The first thing is you're assessing for breathing. And so what you do is you put your ear over the mouth as they're laying down and you're looking down their sternum. Why are you looking down their sternum? How do you check for breathing? How do you know? That's right. Their, their lungs are expanding, so you're looking for any kind of movement. You're trying to feel any breath coming out of their mouth. And if there's no breath, then you have to check for a pulse. And this is the key. This is the number one way to assess somebody's uh, physical condition, whether they're alive or not alive. Now, we have nurses here. Where do I check for a pulse? Carotid artery. Where is that? Right here in the neck. And so we'd have to do this. It was so awkward. You're like, with people you don't know, you're checking their carotid artery. You're like, hey, I'm so sorry. I have to check your pulse. And we do that, right? And here's the point. I go through all that, and it's kind of silly. But we had a systematized process where we could very quickly assess somebody's physical condition and then be able to act on that information. And wouldn't it be nice if we had something similar for assessing people's spiritual condition? It would be so nice, right? You, you're, you're wondering, you're like, I have this friend from college. I don't know if they're saved. All right, let me find out. You just walk up. You spin them three times. You knock on their head a couple times. Ah, it's hollow, man. They're dead spiritually. Wouldn't that be nice? Make it easier. Evangelism, you just spin people, and then you're like, ah, no, I didn't, you don't, you're already saved. <laughs> we don't have that. Obviously, Scripture talks about that there are signs, and there is fruit, and there's all these different things. There's questions you can ask, but those all take time. You have to walk life on life with someone before you can even begin to make an assessment. And there's no way that you know for certain that information is accurate. 
We just don't have the ability to immediately determine the condition of someone's heart. But Jesus does. And that's what's important to understand here. Because he is God, Jesus miraculously knew the spiritual condition of every single person he ever encountered. He didn't have to check for a pulse. He knew. And because he knew the hearts of these people in Jerusalem, he did not entrust himself to them. So what does that tell us? It tells us that they were spiritually dead. They were not alive. He knew the condition of their hearts was lacking. And the passage itself, it hints at this. If you look at verse 23, it says that many believed. Why did they believe? What caused them to believe? It says, when they saw the signs that he was doing. Their faith was founded upon the signs, and it was not enough. And this ought to be a warning for us. That's why I'm stopping here. Because these people believed in the signs Jesus was doing, and yet they did not believe in him. They were intrigued by the novelty and the excitement of what was happening. They're getting to see stuff they'd never seen before, but their hearts were not transformed. And this so, can so easily happen today. I think we, we can kind of almost say, well, that's a, you know, back then problem. But today, you ask someone, how do you know you're saved? You want to know what the answers you get all the time are? Oh, well, you know, there was this one time in my sleep, I had a dream, and I saw Jesus. He was there. And these are people who are sincere. They're not lying to me. They're saying, I saw Jesus, therefore, I know I'm saved. Or they come to you, I was praying, and also I just heard for the first time. I had never prayed before, but I heard Jesus speak to me, and I knew right then I was saved. Or, you know, I actually was living a godless life, but my grandma was starting to get sick, and I prayed for the first time, and, and Jesus healed her, and I knew that's why I'm saved. It's not enough. I mean, praise God if any of those are true, but they are not enough to save you. That's what we see in this passage. These people literally witnessed miracles in the flesh. And they, many of them, didn't get into the kingdom of heaven. And what does that tell us? Again, they weren't born. They weren't born again. They hadn't had new life. Their faith stopped at the works of Christ. Ours has to continue to the person of Christ. If you stop at the work, it's not enough. We have to go beyond. Otherwise, we're the same. Signs are exactly what the name is. They're signs, right? A sign points to something. They, they show you where you're going, the destination, but they're not the destination themselves. So I just want to press on that because we can't stop here like these people did. We have to go deeper if we're going to be received into the kingdom of heaven. And what you need is exactly what the people in Jerusalem needed. You don't need miracles. You need the one doing them. And the reason you need him is because of what is in you. And that's the question on the board. What is in man? It says that Jesus knew Verse 25, he knew what was in man. And what is that exactly? I think most of us know this at this point, if you've lived any piece of life. Pride, envy, lust, jealousy, anger, sin, death. The only thing that we have spiritually apart from Christ is an absence of life. And that is what is in man. <laughs> and the terrifying thing is that we really can't do much about it on our own. In fact, we can do nothing, is what we see in Scripture. And so something has to happen to us. Somebody else has to act if we're going to be saved, if we're going to be brought out of spiritual death. But we have to start there because it shows us our need, because each of us are there. That's where we start. So that answers the first question, what is in man? And it brings me to the second. How can man see the kingdom of God? If we're all dead, which sucks, and being dead is what keeps you out of heaven, then how do we get to heaven? That's kind of the progression here. And this is where we jump into chapter 3, because Nicodemus enters the picture. And what we know is he's a Pharisee, he's a religious ruler of the time, and it says that he came to find Jesus in the middle of the night. And this is during the time when Jesus is doing all these miracles, and he approaches Jesus in the night. And it's interesting that John pulls that detail out. 
He wants us to know it, it's nighttime. And of all the people I read, there's a lot of different opinions on it. They're like, well, you know, Nicodemus wanted to go to Jesus at night because he was scared. There was other Pharisees who would judge him, and so he's sneaking into Jesus, you know? That's kind of the idea. Or there's other guys who are like, no, it shows that, you know, he was a Pharisee and that he was really intensive in his studies, and Jesus was packed with, you know, doing miracles. So nighttime was the only time it was available. I don't subscribe to either of those views. Um, the one I like best is from Dr. Carson, D.A. Carson. He says this, The best clue as to why John includes this is in his use of the word night elsewhere. In each instance, the word is either used metaphorically for moral and spiritual darkness, or it refers to the nighttime hours. If it refers to the nighttime hours, it bears the same moral and spiritual symbolism. Doubtless, Nicodemus approached Jesus at night, but his own night was blacker than he knew. That's good. And it's important to note that because it points us back to what we just talked about. That what is in man is spiritual death. That wasn't just true for the people of Jerusalem, it was true for Nicodemus, even though he was one of their leaders. And so he's coming to Jesus, but he's a spiritually dead man. You know, he's a dead man walking. And being a Pharisee didn't change that. Being a ruler of the Jews didn't change that. Reading his Bible, probably more than any of us, didn't change that. Worshiping God didn't change that. Sacrificing didn't change that. Nicodemus did all of those things. And yet he's still spiritually dead. And the reason for that is because a dead man can't bring himself back to life. No matter what Nicodemus did, no matter what any of us do in our lives, it can't bring us back to life. If I think of um, when I was wrestling through this, what I thought of was Lazarus. Further on in the New Testament, you see that he is a dead man, literally. When we say Nicodemus is dead, talking spiritually, but Lazarus was dead literally. Like he was in the grave and they had rolled it over. And Lazarus, could he do anything to get himself out of the grave? No, it's not like he had a jump start. He gets himself back up, pushes the stone, and rolls out. It's not like he could will himself back into the earth. There was only one thing that would give him the new life. What had to happen? That's right. Jesus had to come calling and put new life into Lazarus, right? He says, come out. What happens? He comes. It's the exact same principle with Nicodemus. The only difference, the only difference is we're talking about his spiritual life, not his physical. And that's what he could not understand. This is what really messes people up, is that Nicodemus needed God to breathe spiritual life back into him, not physical. And so he comes to Jesus. And the reason he comes is not because he realizes he needs spiritual life, but because he realizes there's something very different about Christ. I mean, you can see it in how he addresses him. He, he calls him a rabbi. He's very respectful. And he says, like, Jesus, we, we, we know. He's like, you can almost see it like, you know, when you have power over something, like it kind of makes you feel better. He's like, so we, Jesus, we know that these are from God. You know, like he's almost kind of giving him permission to have power in a way. He's, you know, he's... He's saying all these nice things to Jesus, and I love Jesus' response, <laughs> because it really does seem to me like Nicodemus is trying to show Jesus respect, and Jesus just puts Nicodemus on blast. Have any of you ever had something like this happen? You, you come up to someone, you try as much as you can to be nice. You're like, oh man, I'm giving everything to you, and then you still just get lit up. It usually happens with my mom. For me personally, I don't know about you guys. Jesus doesn't do small talk, right? He goes straight for the heart. And it's, it's almost jarring. Like Nicodemus comes with this whole intro, and then Jesus just takes it to a completely different lane. And I think the reason Jesus does this is, again, because he knows what is in man. He knows the condition of Nicodemus' heart. There's no, there's no reason to waste time with somebody who's dead. So rather than flatter him, he just gets straight to it. He says, Nicodemus... Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You have to think. You've got to put yourself in Nicodemus' shoes here. You have to think he was a little bit taken back by that. Like, he's, Jesus, what, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, you must be born again if you want to see the kingdom of God. And Jesus is unwavering. He doesn't dance around the issue, and he doesn't try and keep Nicodemus comfortable. He gives him one way in. That's the same one he gives to us. And I, I think it's important to notice what, Nic what Jesus doesn't say to Nicodemus. He doesn't say, Nicodemus, clean yourself up, then you will see the kingdom of God. He doesn't say, Nicodemus, start sacrificing on the altar, then you will see God. He doesn't say, worship God more, then you'll see the kingdom. No, he says, be born again, then you will see the kingdom of God. That's his only offer, and it's the only way that's offered to us today. That does not change. And there are not multiple paths to heaven. I think that's what we find here. And this is something that is becoming more and more controversial. In fact, most non-believers I talk to today, when I kind of try and get to the spiritual conversation, I try and go to that next level, like, what do you think gets you to heaven? You know, well, I think it all just works out in the end, right? I lived a good life, you know, whatever religion, it doesn't matter if you're, you know, from, you kind of subscribe to Islam or Hinduism, maybe you're an atheist, maybe you're a good person, we all, we all get in, right? And Jesus comes here in this teaching, and he says, no, there is only one way. And the most unloving thing we could do is try and tarnish that message, because then we're just letting more people slip away. If, if you don't have this new life, if you haven't been born again, then everything else is pointless. The way to, king, the way to the kingdom is exclusive, and that's the part that people don't like. We don't like an exclusive gospel, but it is. And you don't get to change that. It doesn't matter how you feel about it. And that's another thing our world is struggling with so much right now. They want to assert that our feelings can change the truth. You can't. You can deny the truth. You can run from the truth, but you can't change the truth. And this is what we have right here in God's word. It is the truth. That's what Jesus says in John 17. He says, Lord, your word is truth. And so we base our lives not off of how we feel, but off of what this says. And this is saying tonight that there is only one way into heaven. And if you don't have it, you're not getting in. If you want in, you must be born again. That's the message that Jesus has for us tonight. That brings me to the final question. So we've seen we're spiritually dead. We have to be born again. But what does that mean? What does it actually mean to be born again? Because if that's the only way we're getting in, and if that's the key to unlocking our joy and our love and all these different things in our lives, even though so many of us are missing those things, then we, we should probably understand this. We need to have some clarity, and we're not the only ones. Um, in verse 4, what you see is Nicodemus... <laughs> He's taken back by Jesus' answer. And so he responds. He says, how can a man be born again when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? He's saying, Jesus. Jesus. Are you telling me I have to go back in? Come back out? If you think about it, Nicodemus is probably kind of old, so his mom was dead. Like, that's not happening. You know, like, Jesus. And I think really like we can kind of mock Nicodemus like he's an idiot. He doesn't understand. I think he gets what Jesus is saying here. And he is responding in a similar way to show I don't get it. He's saying, Jesus, look, like born again, what can that mean? You're probably trying to tell me something, but I'm missing it. This doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. He's confused. And what I love is that Jesus comes alongside Nicodemus who was a teacher of Israel, and he educates him. Verse 5, he says again, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Jesus wasn't telling Nicodemus to be born again physically. Obviously, none of us can do that. That's not what the new birth is. But instead, he was telling him that he needed a new birth spiritually. And this is the whole idea. 
that we are both body, flesh, and spirit. And we are alive physically, but dead spiritually. Jesus is saying you need both to be alive if you're getting into my kingdom. And that's what he was trying to tell him. And looking at verse 5, I want to sit on this just for a brief second because it's been the cause of a lot of confusion. Because Jesus says uh, another truly, truly statement, and it's interpreting the one before it. So the first one is you have to be born again before you can see the kingdom. The second one is you have to be born of water and the spirit before you can enter the kingdom. And the phrase that has caused the most trouble is that idea of being born of water. What does that mean? Does that mean Jesus is advocating for baptism as a part of our regeneration before we can be saved? Some people ask that. My answer is no. That's not at all what Jesus is talking about here. And really, when he's mentioning water, it's in reference to cleansing, not baptism. It's in reference to cleansing, not baptism. And this is a theme you see throughout Scripture, but I want to read a specific instance in Ezekiel 36. And you can't read John chapter 3 without going to Ezekiel 36. Because it's a prophecy about the new birth that Jesus is teaching. And in that prophecy, here's what God says. He says, The nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you, and he's talking about Israel, from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. That is the sense that Jesus is using here. He's not telling Nicodemus, you've got to be baptized. He's saying, you need to be cleansed. The new birth involves you being clean. And not only that, it involves you receiving a new spirit. Again, turning to Ezekiel 36, if you continue right where I stopped, here's what it says. Verse 25, from all your idols I will cleanse you, Israel, and I will give you a new heart. This is hundreds of years before Jesus comes and says what he says tonight. He says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. And so what Jesus meant when he says you must be born again was that God must miraculously work within you to transform you. And until that happens, there is no life. God has to do the work. That's what Jesus is showing Nicodemus here. He was showing him his need for a spiritual transformation that he could not produce in himself. And that is the hard part of regeneration That word, it simply means to be born again, regeneration. And what people do not like about that is that we, the recipients, are completely passive. There's nothing we get to do to produce this. Instead, it's something that happens to us. Again, using the illustration of someone who is dead. If we are dead spiritually, laying on the ground, we can't do anything to resuscitate ourselves, right? There's no way we can reach out and grab whatever it is we need to help ourselves. Somebody instead has to come and help us. Somebody has to come put the new life in us. And that's what's happening here. And Nicodemus is wrestling with that. Because all of us, we like control. We like to be able to say, no, I can decide the path. But with God, he comes to us and he says, no, you have to trust in me. And you have to wait till I intervene in your life. And until I do, you have absolutely no hope. That's the question. That, that's really what... Nicodemus was confronted with, and that's why he's kind of struggling with it in a lot of the same ways we do. But it's what we need, this idea of regeneration. We need to be radically transformed by the gospel of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so from my time of study this week, I came up with a definition, because I think definitions are helpful for theological terms, and especially one like regeneration. Because you can kind of think like Eastern mysticism, and I don't want that. And so I'm going to present it to you. If you have notes, this would be a good thing to write down. Regeneration is a work of God in which he breathes new life into dead sinners, raising them from spiritual death to spiritual life and giving them the ability to repent and trust in Christ as a new creation. That is what each of us need to get into the kingdom of heaven. So I'll read it again. 
because I know if you're taking notes, you didn't get that. Regeneration is a work of God in which he breathes new life into dead sinners, raising them from spiritual death to spiritual life and giving them the ability to repent and trust in Christ as a new creation. And so what you see is that regeneration is one side of the coin. The other is conversion. On our, this side of the coin, the one we're talking about tonight, regeneration, we are passive. And until this one happens, until we receive this aspect, we can't get to the part where we're active, which is conversion, where we repent, we turn from our sins, we start to put trust in God. We can't even get to that until God does work to transform our hearts. And that's where you start to see how, how scary, how terrible our position really is apart from Christ. Every person in this world has absolutely no chance of coming to know God unless he takes the first step towards them. That's the idea of regeneration. But it's also an encouragement. It can sound really almost like terrifying. You're like, oh goodness, so I can't really do anything, so what am I supposed to do? Well, there is some application here. And so I want to end our time by talking to you. Because in this passage, Jesus is not just talking to Nicodemus. He's talking to you. He's talking to us. And the first thing I want to say in this is that it's God's work, not yours. Regeneration, new birth, it is God's work. It is not yours. That's why he uses the language of birth, right? When you are born, do you have any capacity to actually make it happen? No. Right? When I'm teaching in kids, this is what I tell them. I'm like, what, what did you do to be born? Because I always give them grief because we go through birthdays. And I say, well, on your birthday, really, you should give presents to mom, right? She did the work. Because you didn't do anything. I'm like, you didn't get in there and, like, fire yourself up and then say, let's go and jump on out. Right? You're completely passive in birth. Like, when you're born, like, you don't get to do anything. You're just there. And you get celebrated. But it's the same concept with a new birth. That's why Jesus uses the language. When we are born spiritually, it's not like we get ourselves together, we come, we're, oh, I'm at church now, I'm reading my Bible, I'm doing all these things, I think God's going to do it. He's going to finally just give me the new life I deserve at this point. That's not how it works. Instead, we're completely passive. And we can say that. I can preach that for hours on hours. And yet still, some of you live like somehow it is on you to produce the spiritual life you need. It's not. You are completely passive in this. And that is hard for some of you to accept because really what that means is you have to give up control. And that's the application. It means you have to admit that you are spiritually bankrupt. Your account is on empty, and you need somebody else to help fill it. That's what it means to be born again. And for some of you, you struggle with that. You like to think that there's some things in your bank. Maybe it's your spiritual disciplines. Maybe it's your serving. Maybe it's your clean ledger. I don't know what it is, but it is a stronghold in your life that you hold on to. And you have to give that thing up to Christ. You can't let that be the guarantee that you're going to get into heaven. God's will is that your good works would be a response to regeneration, not the basis for it. This is so key. Listen to Titus 3. He speaks so clearly to this. It says that Jesus saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Jump into verse 8. So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Notice the order. Regeneration comes, the good works follow. It is not the good works first, then regeneration. No, there's no basis out of what we do. We don't bring any merit to our own new life. The only thing, the only reason it gives is that God is merciful. So how many of you are, how many of you are aware of that? Because this is where it starts to get disconnected in our lives. We have in our minds this truth that, yes, the new life is something that God has given to me. But then in the daily application of our lives, the reality of it, we are chasing, we are running, we are trying to just produce this new life. Even though God's given it to us, we're now taking responsibility for something that is not ours. And that's the issue. You have to let it go. 
We need to be aware of God's mercy. Otherwise, we are going to run ourselves ragged, and you will not taste the peace that God has for you. New birth is God being active and us being passive. The second thing I want to mention is that regeneration is mysterious. And this is, ends our passage, starting in verse 6. It says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus uses this illustration. I think it's very helpful. <laughs> he uses wind. He's saying those who are born of the Spirit, it's very similar to the wind. It's something where you can feel and recognize the effects, but you do not know where it comes from or where it's going. There are pieces of new life that we can see. And again, this is the spiritual fruit. For, so for some of you who you're like, I don't even know if I'm saved. I just, I fell into sin again. Well, there are evidences there are effects, like the wind, that you can see in your own life that show that God has given new life. Spiritual fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, happiness, all of them. Those are things. A hunger for God's word. Guilt over sin. Feeling, feeling a desire. Conviction, I guess is the better word, over what we have done. Those are all evidences that God has moved in you to produce new life. But still, we don't necessarily know everything about it. Why? Because we're not in control of it, again. It's God's work, and so he gets to choose when he does it. And this is the hard part. It isn't equate an equation where A plus B always equals C. And so you can't manufacture regeneration. You can't manufacture new birth in somebody's life. Instead, you have to trust in God. And it's hard because you have a family member. You have a friend, or maybe even in your own life, and you're wrestling with these things like, oh man, am I saved? Are they saved? Is God going to save them? And it's up to him. He gets to decide that. And we get to trust in him. And we get to be left in the mystery. And some people would say that is a discouragement. They would say, man, that is hard. You know what? If we don't, if we don't know them, why even try? I would push you the other way. I would say that this is actually an encouragement. And I see it that way. Because I rest in God's goodness. And that's where you have to come when it comes to the doctrine of re regeneration, is God's goodness. We don't know when God's going to choose to bring someone to new life. But we do know that he does it, that he does it often, and that he delights in doing it, and that God is good. And so when we trust in that, then we can walk forward in faith. A great passage on this is Exodus 34, 6. It just speaks of the goodness of God. And so I want to read it. It says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's the God we trust to give us new life. And I'd rather leave it in his hands than in mine. That's where I kind of find myself this week. We leave it in God's hands and we trust him to accomplish that which is good in the people we love and we care about if they're not saved. So don't be discouraged by the mystery. Be delighted in it because there is a God who is bigger than you and he is going to accomplish his plans, which are good. Trusting in that truth is the key. If you're here, and like I said at the beginning, maybe you're someone who thinks or maybe you've thought for a long time, you know, I'm going to get to the gates of heaven someday, I'm going to die, and I'm just going to go right through. And now that I've been sharing that there's only one way, you're starting to think, oh, maybe not. If that's you, genuinely, and you're wrestling with that, then start here with Jesus. Start with Christ in his word as we see him in John chapter 3. He might be calling to you tonight. He might be opening your eyes for the first time. Don't, don't ignore that. Um, answer that call if he's putting it on you. Because the only reason we can even talk about regeneration and this idea that Jesus could bring new life to people by the power of the Holy Spirit, the only reason that happens is because Christ came, he lived, and he died on the cross. That had to happen before we could even talk about this. Christ had to be the atonement for our sins. That means he had to cover them, and he did it with his blood. 
He didn't deserve that punishment, but he went through it for us so that all you have to do, if you don't know him, is receive him. All you have to do is turn to Christ and say, yes, I believe. I want to know more. So if that's you, I'm going to wrap up here shortly. I'd ask, come talk to me or talk to your small group leader and really wrestle through that. What does it mean to be born again? Has that actually happened in my life or am I spiritually dead? I don't know. Maybe God's bringing life tonight and he's asking you to respond to it. For others of you, maybe you're, you're the other person I described. Um, you got in the gate, but now your life doesn't reflect it and you don't know why and you're just discouraged um, by it. Here's my exhortation. Remember what got you in in the first place. It was never you. <laughs> That's good news. It was never you. And you have to meditate on the fact that it is all because of Christ's mercy, all of grace, that you get into the kingdom of heaven. And the work that you have to do is you have to take that truth and you have to wrestle with it so that it is applied to your heart. That is something you get to do. And the way you do that is by meditating on it, not just reading the verse and saying, all right, now it should work. No, just stewing over it, taking that and wrestling with it. God, what does it mean that I was chosen not because I did anything, but because you loved me? And sitting on that for minutes and hours and days and not just going by it. You want to know why there's such a disconnect is because you're not having that battle in your life. You're not wrestling with those truths. You're not applying them to your heart by praying over them and reading over them and worshiping in them. That's where it comes. And that's why it's hard. Because you have to put in some spiritual sweat. Knowing the right answer isn't, isn't enough. You have to take that and really press it into your life. And that's where in my own life I fall apart. That's where so many of you fall apart is we don't do that. It's so much easier to just distract yourself and move on to the next thing. Life's busy enough. You have to take the time to take the truth of what God has done and wrestle it into your heart and then pray that he gives you the strength to do it because you are not strong enough. And that's where it's a work of faith. It's saying, God, I'm not enough, but you are, and I know you're going to press this on me. So that would be my exhortation to you. If you are wrestling and you feel like, yes, I do believe, but I don't see it in my life, remember what got you in and wrestle with that again. Take it to your heart and don't leave it there. Um, don't leave it. Stay there um, and see what God does. Don't let the world distract you from the gift of regeneration. This is an amazing, amazing thing that God has given us, that we would be born again.